Hello, and welcome to the official podcast of Bishop Malcolm Smith. These teachings are recorded live each week and provided not only here on the podcast, but at youtube.com. Simply go to youtube.com and look for Malcolm Smith webinars in the search engine there. We also want to invite you to go to www.malcolmsmith.org. There you will find other teachings by Malcolm, including books, videos, and MP3 downloads. And now, with this week's teaching, Bishop Malcolm Smith. The Lord be with you all. I want to share something tonight that we have looked at before. It's somewhere back there in our archives, but it has been pressed upon me, especially in the light of what I said last week, and I think it would be good to take another look at it and let the Holy Spirit bring it right up to date to where we're at right now. So it's in John in chapter 2, and it's the very well-known passage concerning Jesus turning water into wine at the wedding feast. And so let me read it very quickly, because so many times we assume we know one of these Bible stories, but we really haven't heard it since Sunday school, and that uh, is not good. So, on the third day, there was a wedding in Cana of the Galilee, and the mother of Jesus was there. And Jesus also was invited and his disciples to the wedding. And when the wine gave out. The mother of Jesus said to him, they have no wine. Jesus said to her, woman, what do I have to do with you? My hour has not yet come. His mother said to the servants, whatever he says to you, do it. Now there were six stone water pots set there for the Jewish customer purification, containing 20 or 30 gallons each. Jesus said to them, the servants, fill the water pots with water, and they filled them up to the brim. And he said to them, draw some out now and take it to the head waiter. And they took it to him. And when the head waiter tasted the water which had become wine and did not know where it came from, but the servants who had drawn the water knew, the head waiter called the bridegroom and said to him, Every man serves the good wine first, and when men have drunk freely, then that which is poorer, you have kept the good wine until now. This beginning of signs Jesus did in Cana of the Galilee and manifested his glory and his disciples believed in him. The very first public miracle of Jesus was turning the water into wine. I mean, the background uh, that that happens in the previous chapter and verses, uh, we, we have seen Jesus being baptized down there in the River Jordan, down in Judea. And then from uh, baptism, he goes into the wilderness, driven by the Spirit, to meet with Satan and with the great temptations, which were at the beginning of this public ministry, this manifestation of him as Messiah. 
And on his return from there, uh, first of all, with the mingling crowds around John, and then as they move up the Jordan Valley and into the mountains uh, toward Galilee, he collects a few disciples. You remember, down there with John the Baptist, uh, he collected young John and Andrew, and um, then coming up further, Philip, and then a little bit further, you remember, it was Nathaniel. There's a little collection going on, and they arrive in Cana. And, and it says the third day, that's probably the third day since Jesus left John the Baptist. And incidentally, that will be the last time that Jesus and John would see each other. It was as if John has done the work that he was sent to do. He baptized Jesus, and in that baptism, Jesus is declared to be the one upon whom the Spirit comes, the Anointed One, the Messiah. And that's it. John has done his work. And now Jesus departs to the Galilee. They will never meet again. And as they're going back to the Galilee and they come to this little crossroads in the mountains, it's called Cana, delightful little place. I've been there and I've been to the little houses that are there that are probably exactly the same today as they were then. And a wedding, it's such a small place, it would pretty well take over the entire village and the wedding lasted for seven days. And it, it, they would call in all their relatives, of course. And Mary was there, the mother of Jesus, which strongly suggests that this couple, I don't know who they were, they're anonymous, we never do know, um, just peasants up in the hills. I, I suppose today you'd call them hillbillies. And and Mary is there, which suggests that um, there were relatives of, of Mary, therefore relatives of Jesus, um, sort of extended family. And it could be, well be, that Mary was in some way um, in charge of the catering because she spoke with authority to the servants in the kitchen and the waiters. And so she was the one who knew that they were running out of wine. And it's also interesting, the servants did as she said. And so whether she's there as an important aunt or or some relative, um, or whether she's there as the same, she's a relative, but in charge of the catering, doesn't really matter. The wedding is on. Mary is there, and the wedding is going to last for seven days. And amazingly, as Jesus comes to the village, he gets an impromptu invitation. He's just showed up in the village and is invited. Mary has not seen him for well over six weeks, probably around... um, good eight eight weeks probably because he had left no even more than that he had left the carpenter shop gone all the way down to judea was baptized six weeks 40 days in the desert coming out of the desert back to john picked up the disciples and meanders back and so he's not been around for a long time 
And now he passes through Cana and has an impromptu invitation. And by what happened, they ran out of wine, um, it would suggest that they were not ready. This couple were not ready for six extra guests that just showed up at the beginning of the wedding. Um, but here it is. You get get the picture. And, and so the wedding comes into full swing. Um, they had various feastings as the week unfolded. And during that period of time, the bride and the groom are the king and the queen of the village. Jesus was invited and he accepted the invitation. Just put this into your mind as we move into this story. Uh, I don't know if you stop to think about that. You know, seven days of feasting, eating, drinking, dancing. Uh, the music would rock the hills and the whole village dance in those, what shall I say, peasant folk dances where everybody's holding hands and spinning in circles. and Oh, a rare old time. And Jesus accepts the invitation, becomes part of the celebration. Now, I, I don't want to be sarcastic here. But I know an awful lot of believers, good brothers and sisters in Christ, but their idea of Jesus is totally different to the Jesus I meet in the Scripture. Their idea of Jesus is he probably would have refused to attend such a worldly celebration. I mean, all this stuffing yourself with food and there's drink to be had and the dancing and the music and the laughter are far too worldly for someone they think Jesus was. And of course, they would think Jesus would be awkward, you know, totally out of place. Um, You know, those terribly pious people, you know them, and and you'd invite them to something like this, and they stand there in their Sunday suit and the tie half-strangling them, and they stand there, they don't know what to do, because they're totally out of touch with life on this planet, And, and that's how they think Jesus was, just sitting there, probably meditating with his eyes. No, 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 he's at the feast. He's part of the celebration. He doesn't stand there holier than thou, looking with that, no, 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 no. All those disapproving looks of someone that looks upon themselves as not as other men belong to the Pharisees, not not to Jesus. That was the problem the Pharisees had with him. He went to parties. And of course, as the Gospels unfold, he went to parties with tax collectors. And of course, that's another story altogether, but they would be real parties. This was a peasant hillbilly party up in the mountains of the Galilee. Well, as I said, at a Hebrew wedding, there would be eating, drinking, laughter, music, dancing, especially, as I said, the folk dancing. But all of that was entwined. If, if you go back into the Old Testament and read, especially like the Psalms, 
And, um, well, actually, the stories of the Old Testament, the Hebrew people who, remember, were the people through whom God was revealing himself. They entwined all of life with their covenant relationship with God and, of course, then with each other. We've talked about it before, how they greeted each other every morning and during the day with the Lord be with you, the Lord bless you. There was a sense that wherever I am, whatever I'm doing, it's entwined. That's about the best word I can think of. When when you were plaiting, you know, you take three strands and you plait it together till it's one. To them, all of life was plaited together with the presence of God. And therefore... All of the celebration, everything that happened at the wedding in Cana was entwined with the covenant God and the wedding taking place at the center of this celebration was a covenant event of two persons being joined together. And and so come with me to the wedding at Cana and as you are there laugh with the laughter and let Jesus take your hand and dance a wild mountain dance with you that's the picture here celebrate with this couple joy with them laugh with them yes it was a party but if if I want to insert anything I'm not sure that I do but if I wanted to insert anything I would point out that a party that Jesus would um, be whirling in a Hebrew dance at was not one that is to numb the emptiness of a man outside uh, of the knowledge of God. So there's a big difference. Um, around uh, some persons the other day, I overheard them talking and they were saying they were, they were going to party all weekend and get wasted and numb themselves out because obviously then their soul, their essential self was so utterly emptied the best they could do was entertain themselves out of thinking about it and in the process numb themselves to oblivion of the pain of life outside of Christ. Um, That's all I'll say about that. Uh, This party that is here was one that welcomed the divine joy that always attends the covenant It is the celebration of God who is with us in every part of our lives. But let me return again to some of our friends. You see, this that I've just described, it doesn't fit. I'm serious. I've, I've heard preachers who have portrayed Jesus at this party as, you know, the the total spoiler, um, the the one who tried to shut the whole thing down. Because the idea of a wedding feast in Cana, that's what we're dealing with, that doesn't fit the religious idea of holy. You know what I mean? Holy is supposed to be some terribly morbid affair where one hardly cracks a smile. I I won't bore you by quoting from persons that I have admiration for. I read their material of back in the 
15th, 16th, 17th century. But they actually, they actually applied a switch. You know, they, they, they smacked a child that laughed and played because they said the child must not waste its time in the frivolousness of laughter. It must study the scriptures. Oh dear, oh dear. As if holy is something unsmiling, uh, intensely serious, burdened with a dark cloud of responsibility to be moral. And Now, you know the word holy. We've talked about it. It, it, it is God being utterly himself in, in the infinity, the limitlessness of his beautiful love, which is in a continual state of joy and peace and rejoicing. For in his presence is fullness of joy, pleasures forevermore. Yeah, that's holy, holy. That It's God separated to himself as the only one. He is the only true love. He's the only real joy. He's the only real peace. He's the only real wisdom. And when we are holy, it is that we are participating in his holiness and share that love and dance with his joy. If you read the Psalms, they are filled with rejoicing and gladness. No, religion a really good Pharisee would have shut this celebration down with a look. But it was Jesus, not a Pharisee. Let me pursue it one step further. This is a wedding. A wedding. I mean, just let that sink in. Wedding. See, religion sees God as dealing with the big stuff. You know, if you think about God, well, he deals with salvation. He deals with heaven and hell, judgment. Uh, yeah, I, I, I know, I know. But, but what, what about life? See, the God you've just described as dealing with salvation seems to deal with the salvation as disconnected with where I live deals with a heaven that doesn't know anything about where I'm walking every day. As if, as if he's a God who's distant, remote, and removed from annoying human activity like work. You know, God, God's, God thinks about the big stuff, not, not about where I work and that I want to work and, and school, sitting at a desk or studying in college, university, or, or play football, you say, the daily grind. Religion has no place for that. But this, and it's significant, it's the very first. This is where the gospel bursts into public. The very first. This is a, a window into that word that we return to so often, incarnation, that God, God the Son, God became flesh. He totally immersed himself 
into our life. Not, not as a stranger who has to do this to fill out a report to say he was there, but totally immersed into the necessity of our little periods and commas in life. Jesus is God who got inside family life, village life, celebration. He's totally human. He's one of us and there's not a detail of life that we walk in, but I see his footprints. I realize his presence. So we, we get all excited when baby takes a first step or, or there's a first tooth, you say. Or, or the, the mother who takes child to school on the first day and goes through the trauma of seeing the child disappear through the school door. You see, does God know what's going on there? Does he get excited when the first tooth comes or when toddler loses first tooth and waits for the big ones to come? Does, is that recorded in this God? Does God know what it is to blow out the candles on a birthday cake? Does he know what it is to sit and watch a game of football and cheer for his side? Does he know what vacations are? Does he know what Christmas is? Does he know what Thanksgiving is? Does he know what it is when family comes together and celebrates together? Does he know what it is? Graduation. Yes, I mean, daily stuff, like a marriage. It all fits in there, a marriage. It's part of human life. It's part of family life, part of village, church life. Is that of any importance? Yes, it's the very first public thing that Jesus ever did. Already for 30-some years, he's been the breadwinner. He, he's gone to the well to draw the water that they're going to use. He's, he's looked in the closet and known when they need new clothes and new shoes. He's gone to the carpenter shop and it's been the daily grind of dealing with customers and paying bills and, and probably having stood at the graveside of his stepfather, Joseph. Do you realize every time you pass through anything that I've just mentioned or anything like that, that fits that, that that is known in the experience of God. He just doesn't know about it because he's God, but he's been there. He's laughed there. He's laughing in you. Well, in the middle of all that, Mary, the Virgin Mary, the mother of Jesus, comes and she's anxious. And whether she's anxious because she was in charge of the, the proceedings, that's possible. Or it's possible that she's anxious because as, as a significant relative in the whole thing, her son has shown up with six other guys and somehow, well, we weren't prepared for that.
I, I don't know. It, it seems, as I said earlier, that Mary was in charge of, of the catering. Um, but whatever, she comes to Jesus and there's a certain anxiety in her voice. They've run out of wine. Run out of wine. Ay, ay, ay. Now, in that would be an embarrassment, I suppose, in any wedding. But if you were a peasant couple in the hill country of the Galilee, in that little crossroads called Cana, you are talking big problem. Because, you see, what was the center? It was a covenant feast and covenant was associated with drinking the wine. It, it, it was part of the covenant, and it talked to the blessing and the joy of God on the marriage to run out of wine. Well, to those people, heavy into superstition, to those people, that was a cloud on the marriage, a sort of shame that would mark the whole marriage, not just the wedding. This this was shame. The, the, the family would carry the shame. They'd talk about it in 20 years' time. Do you remember that they ran out of wine? Uh, that's... Oh, I, I, yeah, they, they would say... At best, they would say, this is an omen. This means bad luck on the whole marriage. And some of the more diehards would say there's a curse on the wedding. Whichever way, you get the point. This was, this was serious. And so Mary comes to Jesus and and. I, I, I can hear it. The anxiety is in her voice. Look, look, he says, it's urgent. There's a crisis. We've run out of wine. I can hear her anxiety. And very obviously at this point, when Mary comes in again, this suggests she was the caterer because no one else knew. It, it was just back there in the kitchen. The The kitchen staff, they knew but nobody else, the, the MC of the feast who would uh, coordinate everything that happened for the seven days. Um, okay, the, the, the wine isn't appearing, but obviously they're opening another barrel or something like that. No one knew except the servants and Mary, and she's in a panic. And, and, and she comes to Jesus he says this was his first miracle, and, and therefore she has no track record here. But I, I see she, she's had him in the house for 30-some years, and so she has learned to trust the unique wisdom that flows from him. That, I think we can gather that from the few verses we have that sum up those 30 years. But also, and I have to throw this in, I think she's sort of waiting for everything that was said. Remember back there when angel Gabriel came to her? 
when she was a young teenager in the kitchen of the house in Nazareth and the angel came into the kitchen and told her that she would conceive a child without a human father and he would be the Messiah and so on and so on. And all he's done is make doors and fences, carpenter. Do, do I hear? Is it possible? She knows he's been to the gala, uh, down to the uh, desert. She knows something he's, he's told her, something about him is different since he came back from being baptized and the temptation. Something's different. Is it, I mean... Is she giving him a push? Is she saying, I've waited 30 years to see what that angel was talking about? Maybe this is... I don't know. All I do know is that in her anxiety and panic at the unspeakable happening, she turns to Jesus. His response, which has confused a lot of people, he says... Woman, what have I to do with you? I mean, that doesn't sound very nice. Well, number one, woman in their culture was a term of great honor, great respect. Uh, He might have said, my dear lady. Um, So so drop that out of uh, confusion. He was addressing her with tremendous honor. And respect. But then he said, What is that to me? And it would appear he he was saying, in effect, we're not on the same page on this. He he's not being rough with her, he is coming to the point, his bottom line. You are coming to me with anxiety that we've run out of wine and you want me to do something, do something, do something. Drama. Panic, anxiety. And he says, no, I'm not on that page with you. So they've run out of wine. My response to their running out of wine is not to be directed by panic. It's not to be pushed by a tremendous need that's got to be met now. God, Holy Trinity, is never overwhelmed. Father and Son and Holy Spirit never wring their hands and say, now what on earth are we going to do? And don't necessarily just smile at that. Understand this is the God we deal with who lives in perfect peace. And Jesus does not respond to drama and panic. He will not be pressed into action by the enormity of the problem. You've got to do something now. Rather, he says, my time has not yet come. That is, your time to act is the news of running out of wine. Your your time to act is determined by the urgency. We've got to do something. I'm not on that page. 
Leave it to me. I will act in Father's timing. And that timing is always in a base of peace. He will act, but he will not act in anxiety. He will not act because he sat down with you to wring hands together. He will act in the Father's way and the Father's time, which of course is what he's doing here. He has come to, in his very person, the way he speaks and does things and is, he is here to reveal the Father and reveal the love, the care, the compassion, the concern and the peace and to bring that into our human way. He doesn't, he doesn't share that necessity with her. Rather, he basically tells her, if you're going to do anything, get on my page. And, and for her to get onto his page would be simply to trust him and come out of the negative mode of anxiety and panic, which she does. Though, as I say, these words are very few, but it's obvious her tone changes. When he said that, she goes to the servants and says, whatever he says to you, do it. Meaning, it's out of my hands. I, I am not going to operate out of the panic mode. He said he will handle it. I, I trust him. That's basically what she's saying. He, he does not respond to fear. He doesn't respond to crisis. He doesn't respond to any but to the Father. He said, the works I do, I see my Father doing. I, the, the words I say, I hear my Father saying. And, and I, again, I don't want you to put that off in the clouds somewhere. It means that when stuff happens like this, there are a thousand voices screaming in our head. We're like a zoo at feeding time. And we feel we've got to answer all of the questions and well, what's going to happen and what should we do? And all Jesus did was be still and what's Father's timing and what's Father going to do? And we now in Christ can do the same thing and get the same answers. To remember, and I don't want to get off on this, just enough to say when the boat was on the Galilee in that mother of storms and the boats is sinking and they're bailing water as fast as they can. And I think Peter probably in, in a panic. See, we're back there again. Drama is shaking him, waking him. Don't you care? We're perishing. Wake up. And Jesus just reading it, read it enough times and you begin to feel what's happening. He gets up and there's a slowness about it. He's, he's, he's not responding to the panic. And, and he commands, peace, be still. And immediately there's a great calm and he turns to them and says, why were you afraid? Why were you afraid as the boat's going down in a hurricane of hurricanes? What a question. That's worth an hour's talk, isn't it? But do you see what I'm saying? We, we learn to live from the peace of God in complete trust in his care. He has a beautiful love plan for this, 
but you'll not find it in the screaming, howling voices of anxiety and fear. Notice she said to the servants, whatever he says to you, do it. She, she anticipates he might do something weird here. <laughs> this isn't going to be run to the next village and buy some wine. Something's going to happen. I don't have a clue what it is, but I'm warning you guys, it might be a little different. Might be a little strange. So kind of heads up on that, okay? Expect the unexpected and whatever he says, just do it. Do it. It's okay. So, but you see, that makes me nervous. I'm serious. Makes me nervous. Um, Because when I'm in the Mary mode of anxiety and panic, and if indeed, as is possibly true, she wanted to get him into messianic action that she's been waiting for for 30 years, and we want to see God do something. And when he says, on my time, that makes me nervous. As if, um, maybe you don't have all the facts, Jesus. Would you, would you like me to go over it again? I, I... No, he has all the facts. And of course, his time was immediately thereafter. He was simply saying to Mary, we don't operate out of anxiety. Nor do we operate out of, you've got to do something. We operate from a different source. Father, and I have to emphasize, it. my time has not yet come, did not mean maybe tomorrow morning after breakfast. It was immediate. He went straight ahead, right? But it was from a different source, a different base. That's the whole point. And it was all done... In secret, everything. Mary told him in secret. This was not an announcement to the whole party. And as I said, only the servants knew and Mary knew. And it was kept in secret. That's amazing. Just stop and think about this. It was done in secret. The whole jolly thing. You know, the, the image that people hold of Jesus, he... What mightier? He he might have stopped the whole feast. I mean, just walk out there, put up your hand, stop it, and tell them, it's time to go home, you've all drunk too much, you drain the place dry. Or, he could have really made a big fuss, announced, well, we've run out of wine, and immediately introduced that black cloud that would not go away in the lifetime of this couple. He might have called a prayer meeting and said it's time to get serious with God and pray that God shows up and does something. Or, I want you all now to stop what you're doing and come and watch while I perform a miracle. No. Incidentally, all those things I've just said he might have done, I've I've seen that. Uh, Many persons would approach it and think they're being... Jesus-like in doing it. He keeps it a secret. No one knows of the crisis or what's going on. Here we are in this 
To those peasants, it was the crisis of a lifetime. The music goes on playing. All the chatter and laughter of the party and probably a dance or two thrown in there. Someone is standing to congratulate the couple. Everything's going on as usual. But we don't have any time, you see. We've already passed the last minute. We've we've got no other resources. There's nowhere to turn. That's why I'm getting nervous about his timing. But back in the kitchen, where you can hear all the music and the laughter away in the background, here in the kitchen... The only people who know the crisis. Jesus said, fill the water pots with water. They were large stone water pots used um, in, in Jewish custom. And he said, fill them to the brim. This is very important that Jesus said that, and it's recorded he did. Fill the water pots with water. Fill it to the brim. What, what, what's that about? Well, he doesn't say fill the wine barrels with water. Why? Oh, you know people. Fill the wine. You know, you know what it was. There was wine left in the bottom of the barrel, and he just filled it up. That, that's yeah. No, he said, Let, let's let's go to the water pots, the pots that have only ever had water in them. So there's nobody going to say there was some wine in the bottom, and fill them to the very brim. I mean, right to the top. Why? Well, you see, if he'd said half full, someone would suggest he'd added some wine and made it look like that. There were six water pots. Do you realize, if you work it out, there was 180 gallons of water put into those water pots that he turned into wine. The servants are just watching. They're confused. They're, they're part of the crisis, but then they're just doing their job. If they ran out of wine, they ran out of wine. But they're watching because the outcome of this is going to fall on their shoulders. And when they topped off the last water pot, Jesus half turns away. His work is done. He said, now put your ladle in and pull out a glass of wine and take it to the MC for tasting. Would you, would you love to be one of those servants? <laughs> I mean, come on. You take your, your ladle, you know, the great big cup, spoon, that, that you, you dip into the top and you pull it out and into the glass. You know that's water. You put water in there. And he's telling you to go with a glass of water to the master of ceremonies for a wine tasting. But as he pours it out, it is rich red wine. 
I, I, I don't know. I've tried in more than one of these stories to be those people that that were involved in something they had not a clue that was going on. I mean, I think I would be dazed. I'd even have trembled a bit as I took that glass. Keep looking at it. Is it going to turn back to water any minute? Take it to the MC. Uh, and then watch his face. I mean, surely, am I am I hallucinating? Is is that really water? And he's going to spit it out and say, "What have you given me?" But instead, to see that growing smile on his face, and then and the original language would possibly mean that he shouted at, at the the groom. Um, certainly, this is a unexpected congratulation and and as i say the word that is used suggests he shouted whoa uh, he tastes the wine he says I, I i don't get this he shouted to them he says well, well what's going on he said at this point in the feast you usually bring out the dregs the the, the stuff that you know We've 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 had the best wine as the feast started and went on. By this time, you usually bring out the old stuff. No, he said this. I've never tasted wine like this. Is the best wine? You've kept it till last, you jolly fellow. Huh. It's as if to say, you know, Israeli wine. The year A.D. 30, grown in the hill country of the Galilee, best wine you'll ever taste. That's what he's saying. And when he says that, the couple look at him and look at each other and look at the family. What's he talking about? They don't know a thing he's talking about. You realize the persons for whom this miracle took place didn't know what was going on. They didn't even know there'd been a crisis. They, they did not ask Jesus. They didn't have a lot of faith, you see. They didn't have to agonize and have a night in prayer and confession of faith. No. Nor did they have to give an offering to Jesus to get him to do it. <laughs> 180 gallons of the best wine they'd ever tasted, and all for free, the gift of the Holy Trinity. They didn't know until days later, when it all came out. And all the time that's going on, the MC shouting, the dazed couple, confused waiters, and Jesus stands in the kitchen and he's chuckling. He's having a ball watching all of this. They don't know what's going on. And he's having his own private delight, gladness and rejoicing right there. And it says he, in doing that, he revealed his glory. Yes. Yes. <laughs> I know. And if you're having a problem with this, just just keep reading this till the Holy Spirit at least lets you see what was going on. And in that, in, in this that I have attempted to describe, 
He revealed his glory, not as a lecture. He didn't preach on the glory of God. He didn't give them information, nor did he even give to them a sort of revelation. He, in his person, who he is, how he thinks, how he looks at it, what he does, actually without a word being spoken, that spontaneous kindness, that love. You know glory. We've talked about glory. It means the shining forth of who a person is, their, their track record. And here it is. What was the glory? Read it, uh, Moses, what is it, Exodus 34, when Moses said, show me your glory, and the glory of God passed by, and out of that glory, God gave a resume of who he is, and he uses the words, he is goodness, he is compassion, he is loving kindness. And what does that look like? Oh, please, don't push it off into heaven somewhere. It looks like the feast at Cana. It looks like a bunch of hillbillies who have run out of wine and God's goodness and his loving kindness and his compassion gives them a free gift of 180 gallons, enough for the whole jolly village. That's the glory of God, his love for us in the details of life, the everything Things that we feel are too small and unimportant. But this is the God, the Son, who is the Word, the outspeaking of God, telling us what God is like. This is what He's like. Limitless kindness. Just plain kindness. Come on. I said how many times we don't know their names. They're an anonymous couple that in today's or even that world were just a couple of nobodies. Uh, neither name nor address, just a couple of nobodies who could neither probably read or write up in the hills. And it just so happened that Jesus shows up with six other guys and upsets probably the whole menu of the feast. Infinite kindness and a spontaneous love that takes in every detail of our human situation. So, why does he turn water into wine? Well, I, I don't know. I mean, there's really no great reason. I mean, this isn't going to change the history of the world, you know. It's a wedding feast. And he turned water into wine for no good reason that I can give to you, except that he saved a couple from the shame of a superstitious village. Save them for... God. Now that they'd talk about this for their whole lifetime, the whole village would, only in a very different way. I tell you, he did it just to bring joy to a whole bunch of peasants. 
leaving the couple confused in wonder, saying, why would he do that for us? Why indeed? This is the Jesus who lives in you. This is the Jesus who fills your house. This is the Jesus who is in every detail of your little life. Because in, in truth and fact, most of us sort of fill this. I mean, very few people know our names, and um, yet fewer know our address, and yet fewer care anything that happens. And this... This was an emergency, but okay, let me push it a bit further. It didn't have to be, you know. If this wedding had been planned properly, this wouldn't have happened. There was a mistake somewhere. Somebody overlooked the ordering of enough wine. So there's a part here you could say, well... You know, it was their fault. What's the expression? They made their bed lay in it, you know. Um, No, God loves you too much for that. He's involved in such details. And notice also Jesus did this. What can I say? So easily. There's no sweat here. There's no effort there's no spiritual warfare. You know, with, with when he healed the sick, he laid hands upon them in a word of command. When they were the demonic, then, then he commands them out of the person. It's sort of a big deal. But here, in the kitchen, he doesn't make any commands, except to the servants. That's it. No word. Just, just do it. Fill the water pots with water. Okay, done it? Okay, now now draw out a cup full of wine. The ease. This is uh, in Matthew 6. Have you noticed that? It's talking about all these daily stuff of life. What should we eat? What should we drink? What should we wear? And and Jesus said, after all those things, the Gentiles, or those who don't know the covenant love of the Father, that, that's where they live. They seek after those things. They focus on them. That's it. He said, not you. Seek first. Focus on the kingdom of God. Focus on the presence and the rule and the desire and the delight of the Father. Focus on that. That's your life. And, and by the way, all these other things, they will follow you. I've got it. I've got it. I, I'm handling that. That's my department. No anxiety, no drama. All these things shall follow you. It, it's almost the same with the feeding of the 5,000, isn't it? You just had them sit down now and sit down all in order. No, no mob crowd here. Just sit down in order. Do you remember that? And give me the five loaves and two fishes. Thank you, Father. And now give it to... And, and there's no big deal about it. His provision. He speaks out of his inner knowing of Father's love and compassion. And he trusts that love. 
And he trusts that his father's provision will be there for simple folk. It is so. It is so. See, religion says, what must we do? What must we do to me? Shall I fast? Shall I pray? Shall I read my Bible more? Shall I? What did Jesus say? I'm not on the same page. Father's love is. He can't earn it, can't buy it, can't twist his arm, can't scream because of... No, it just it is. Rest in his love. Now, what are you doing, Father? Is there something I, I want me to do? But, of course... It's in those areas I've been talking around. That's where all our worry comes. That's where all the anxiety is. And he is saying that he's in the middle of it. God himself has experienced the emergency, the crisis. And he's shown us the way God works. Out of peace. Out of trust. Out of seeing God do what afterwards you wonder, how on earth did he do that? At the time, it does seem almost the natural thing to do. But afterward, you recognize he, he, he was the conductor of the orchestra. He synchronized the whole event. Trust in him who cares for you. Trust in the God who without limit has compassion to look after you when you don't even know what's going on. How many times has God's protection and provision been there and you only found out that it was a provision afterward, like this young couple? And when you see his provision, just remember, it was just for you. There's, there's no great lesson here. He just, he wants you to know his joy. He wants you to know his peace and his embrace. So he's there. He's right there in the middle of our everyday life. Every event. Laughter and play. Tears. He's right in the middle of it. Crisis. He's right in the middle of it. He's there. The love of God in action. That's why it says, well, we finished last week, didn't we? Saying, in all your ways acknowledge him, and he shall direct your paths. In all your ways know him. In all your ways let that union with him be a reality. And so when the wine runs out and the flesh panics, just remember you are at the core of your being in union with the God who has absolute knowledge of what's going on. He also has absolute knowledge of how you see it, how you hear it. And he quietly says, I don't share your panic. Come with me and let's trust in what Abba's doing in this little tiny piece of everything. And now the blessing of God, who is almighty love, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, His incredible love, fill your mind so that you might see clearly 
life as he sees it and be ready for life as he plans it that his glory might be made manifest to that end i bless you and declare that is the way it is